Hey guys, John Paulamy here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Saturday, March 11th, and this is the weekly market update. The disclaimer, anything that you hear or see on this podcast or video is not to be taken as investment advice. Please do your own due diligence. It's your money. It's your responsibility. Okay, so I've been talking a lot in the recently uh, about liquidity. I've brought up Stan Druckenmiller's quote many times about in the short term, medium term, that liquidity and sediment are the main drivers of these markets. I'm talking about these uh, capital markets, stock and market in particular. And I continue to believe that. And I think that's why there's a lot of issues happening because liquidity is being tightened. As you can see here, this is the uh, a chart of the cumulative change in Fed funds rate since start of initial rate increase. And so you see that the, the, the latest iteration of the rate raising cycle has been the quickest uh, that we've ever seen in recent history. And so that's one component. The other component is the Fed's balance sheet. The Fed is shrinking its balance sheet at something like close to $100 billion a month, okay? So zero interest rates for many years, coupled with the Federal Reserve's QE programs, were liquidity enhancing for the market. They provided liquidity. Think of liquidity as lubricant of the gears of an economy of these markets. And so if you start you know, if you drain the oil transmission fluid out of your transmission, it's going to start having problems, right? Uh, same thing with your engine oil. You're going to have an issue uh, with your engine. It's not exactly analogous, but it's that's how you need to look at it. And so I find it, I don't find it amusing, but I find it a little bit, I, I've talked about this before. People are like on FinTwit and things like that. Well, you know, the fundamentals for, for example, uranium, I'll just like to use this as an example, are so good, but why aren't the uranium stocks going up? Because they're stocks. And when liquidity is tightening or going down, most stocks will go down, even ones with good fundamentals. Let me say that again. In the short and medium term, liquidity and sediment is what drive mark, drives the stock market, okay? It doesn't matter necessarily what the fundamentals are. Fundamentals can be terrific. They are terrific long-term, talking three to five years out. But in the short term, we have many headwinds, okay? And we're gonna talk more about some of these headwinds. And so in a market of stocks or stock market that's in a bear market and it's probably gonna go lower, we haven't seen the bottom of this bear market as liquidity shrinks, People pull back. They pull money out of more speculative areas of the market, more er smaller uh, cap areas like like junior mining. You can go back in time and look at any time that there was a recession, there was a drawdown in the stock market, and a lot of these junior mining companies get crushed. Doesn't matter what their fundamentals are necessarily in the short term because liquidity's not there. Again, it's like draining oil out of your engine and then driving it. It's going to seize up. That's what we're seeing. And so you have to be patient, build cash. Now, it's not guaranteed that they go down. I don't know exactly what's going to happen company by company. If somebody hits some new drilling during their exploration and finds you know massive high-grade 
resource, then yes, individual companies can buck the trend. And there's individual sectors that are bucking the trend. You know, we talked about the lat, uh, in the news inside the newsletter about the tankers industry. Okay, what's going on there? What's driving it? Tanker stocks have rallied very significantly over the last year, and and in particular last couple months. Okay, but as liquidity continues to tighten, we're starting to see things break in the economy, which is what we said would happen. Okay. And so people get scared. That's the sediment part. Sediment becomes negative. You know, if you, you want to follow a good index, look at the CNN fear and greed index. They publish it and see where that's at and understand what the components are that go into that. Okay. It tracks sediment. And so you need to be thinking about this. You know, I'm not, you know, I'm not putting new money into any of these companies, even in the portfolio, because again, we're, we have too many headwinds right now. Now, now I suspect, as I talked about my base case for 2023, now that things are starting to break, now that things are starting to deteriorate, and we'll see what happens with this recent bank failure, if it, if it becomes uh, contagious or not, but we're starting to see these things break. These businesses, these things that made sense during low interest rate environments, as they continue to raise rates and tighten liquidity, Again, you're drain, as you drain the oil out of these running engine, what starts happening, okay, if it starts seizing up? And so there's no hurry. That's why I keep talking about, you know, just find out what your money market fund is in your brokerage account, what they pay. If it pays a decent rate of return, just build cash. Go to Treasury Direct, just buy T-bills. You know, it's not sexy, it's not fun, it's boring, and people get antsy. They want to do something. They want to get active. I have to do something, okay? No, you don't have to do anything. Just sit. The bargains are going to come to you. What do you think inevitably is going to happen as the economy starts breaking and things start breaking? What do you think the Federal Reserve is going to do? They're going to reverse course and reliquify. Okay. And when they do, these things are going to run like they're on like, you know, they're they're on fire. Especially these more speculative areas of the market. You have to be patient though. Be patient. Now we don't know for certainty what will happen, but that that's the playbook that we're running from on our base case. There's no need, if you can get 5%, over 5% now in a T-bill or, I mean, close to that in money market funds, you do a little research, just sit there, accumulate cash. You should be accumulating cash all the time. You should have cash coming in, right? Side businesses, salaries, your salary, whatever. Accumulate cash, you know, take that 5%, 4.75, whatever you can get and, and wait. Build your list of things. Do the research of what happens. What screams higher coming out of a new uh, Fed uh, upcycle in liquidity creation? Gold, junior mining, these type of things, okay? They're going to run. Now, over this course of this decade, we're, we're still believers in real assets. We think that, I think that uh, we're going to have a tremendous return. But again, think about cyclical downturns inside secular moves, okay? I've said that before. This is why I keep putting these charts up. Okay, guys. So this is another one that uh, is interesting. Uh, money supply growth is now contracting. This is uh, M2 growth year over year. Last four, uh, it's now negative. Okay, you saw what happened during the pandemic. We pushed all this cash out there. Um, the Fed was reliquifying everything. They were just soaking the economy with... Uh, liquidity. The federal government was sending checks to everyone. 
and you saw what happened. Uh, we had 26% year-over-year growth, and this is why people become infatuated. Well, this, well, I had these great returns. I'm a genius. I'm a good investor. No, you were riding the liquidity wave, and now it's reversed. You have negative M2 growth. They've tracked this back to 1870. That's happened four times before where we've had minus, you know, this type of contraction in M2. Look what we had. We had in the 1870s. Now, I don't know exactly. I haven't went back and researched all this, but I find this indicate, indicating this type of anecdotal evidence to be very, very interesting. Why? Well, the last time this happened was the Great Depression. We had 25% unemployment. That was negative 12% M2 growth. The 1921 depression, when we had negative 2%, okay? And we had 11% unemployment, 1893 and 1870. Now, we didn't have the Federal Reserve during these times. Uh, they understood that they made the mistake. And so I suspect that as things, now we're starting to see things break with this negative 2%. Uh, do I think we're going to have a deflationary depression? Absolutely not. They will create enough money to... Uh, to counteract that. They know how to do it. They'll, that's what they'll do. And this is one, what Stan Druckenmiller is talking about, liquidity and, and sediment. Okay, right now, sediment is fear right now because of this bank failure. Liquidity is contracting and people are, are moving into cash, okay? You have, I've heard probably several podcasts where people um, that I really respect saying they don't have a clue what's going to happen next year, okay, or this year going into next year. And so cash is a good thing. So all this cash starts coming out of the markets. What do you think is going to happen to the overall stock market? What do you, in particular, junior resource stocks? I mean, come on, guys. You're swimming, you're swimming in a riptide. Don't do that. Now, I don't think we'll have a depression. Like I said, they'll do, the, they'll do what they always do. You see, they always tease around here and they always come back and reliquify. That's what they do. And they'll create, they'll, you know, I, I brought up this quote by Felix Zuloff, a guy that I respect, who's based in Switzerland. He used to be on the Barons Roundtable, really smart guy. And he said in an interview a couple of year, couple few years ago that he, he thought it would, he, it wasn't out of, it wasn't out of the realm of possibility that by the end of this decade of the 2020s, that the Fed's balance sheet could be 30 or $40 trillion. It's at eight or something like that, right? Eight or $9 trillion now. And people thought he was nuts. I don't think he's nuts. They have a lot of issues, okay? And um, I think that, you know, things will, things are starting to creep. The, 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 the cracks are developing. The tremors are getting worse, like this bank failure. Things are starting to crack. Okay. And uh, again, that's why I think we're closer to the end of the rate raising cycle and the liquidity contraction than we are to the, to the beginning, because this is exactly what we said would happen. It's not because we're genius. It's just obvious. Again, if you go and, you know, crack the drain on your oil pan and the oil is dripping out eventually, uh, and then you keep increasing the drip rate and you continue driving the, the engine will seize up. And that's what, that, that's, what's going on right now with the U.S. economy. And so do I think we'll have these depressions? No, we didn't have, you know, in the 1800s, we didn't have those first three up to, you know, we didn't really have the Federal Reserve 
had just been created uh, before the 1921 depression uh, and they didn't understand what they understand now. I'm not saying it's the right thing to do. I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm not saying that having chronic inflation, which is what we're going to have going forward because we're an over-indebted economy. I'm not going to get into that argument again. I'm not saying these are good things. I'm saying this is what they plan on doing because they don't have any other choice. You cannot let the excesses that have built up for, for 100 years of central banking causing distortions in the market from central planning of interest rates you cannot have a situation where you just let those things, the free hand of the market, uh, creative destruction take place because you'll have a deflationary depression and you know you would have you would have a 1930 31 depression. You would have 25 or 30 or 40 percent unemployment. It's not politically tenable. So that's why they'll take the balance sheet where they need to take it. That's why they'll create as much liquidity. And I think it was proven, you know, I used to think uh, years ago, I would say, well, you know, the Federal Reserve or people would say, uh, well, they can't create inflation. You know, money supply growth doesn't create inflation. You see uh, inflation was low for so long, blah, blah, blah. You saw what they did during the pandemic. If the government, if the Treasury and the Federal Reserve want to create inflation, they can create it. It's just a matter of how much money you want to print and how much helicopter money you want to send out to people. So we'll see, but this is uh, this is where we're at, and uh, you know I'm not like again I'm not forecasting a depression, but uh, things are cracking. And here we go: Silicon Valley bank failure, symptom of tightened liquidity. Also, uh, you know I'm not going to get into this because I'm not an expert banking. I'm just what I've read. It's very simple. You had a bunch of people that really didn't really know what they were doing, um, which is typical. I, I saw one of the uh, somebody put it on Twitter. One of the guys that was a uh, I don't think he was the chief financial officer, but he was somebody high up in the company. You know, was a former Lehman Brothers guy. You know, so from one failure to the next, that's what happens, right? So, anyways, basically, you know, they had this bond portfolio, the bank did, and as rates went up, what happens when rates go up to the price of bonds? They go down, and their average, I think, interest rate of their bonds was like two and a half percent. I think I read something like every quarter percent increase in rates, they they had a, a billion dollar loss. You know, it wasn't a recognized loss, but you still had to mark because of the banking rules, you have to mark the losses mark to market. Okay. I mean, you can hold the things for duration and get your money back, right? There'll be, you know, the dollars that you get back will be less, but you know, they didn't have any interest rate hedges. So we have this quickest and one of the biggest up moves in interest rates by the fed in the last, you know, a couple generations and these guys are holding all of these bonds or various securities, and they don't have any interest rate hedges. And so when they started having to mark things to market, they had these losses. Then they went out and basically said they're going to have to do an equity raise to raise more equity. And then, you know, you had people saying, a lot of people, venture capitalists and people that are telling their uh companies that they had funded to get their money out of the bank, you basically had the self-perpetuating bank run. So I don't know what will happen. Uh, you can read various, you know, you know, you can go to zero hedge and say, we're going to have this contagion. This is the end, you know, blah, 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 blah. Then other people say, well, you got the, you know, you do have the FDIC and there they closed the bank. 
typically what happens is the regulators come in, um, they start going through everything. Uh, basically, you, you do have FDIC insurance uh, for the people that w have accounts that are higher than that. You know, I don't think there's going to be a bail-in. They've got everybody on the phone, JP Morgan, Warren Buffett, everybody. They will uh, make a deal and somebody will take over the assets of the bank. It'll probably get announced next week. And, uh, you know, they'll probably avoid a contagion. This is, I, I, you know, but this is a fairly large bank. It's like the 16th largest bank in the U.S. So this is the biggest, second biggest bank failure since Washington Mutual during the 2008 financial crisis. So it's not, I, I think it is a symptom of the tightened liquidity we're seeing. Like I said, we're starting to see things starting to crack and break now. I uh, put this Warren Buffett quote here, only when the tide goes out, do you discover who's been swimming naked? So I'm sure they've got him on the phone and he, he's willing to buy all these, you know, he always cuts a deal. This is why you want to be liquid, right? Because this is, you want to be sitting there ready to pounce on the weak zebra or wildebeest in the herd, right? The sick and the weak, uh, you can feed on them. And uh, this is how capitalism works. We recycle the, uh, the, the, the ownership of the assets doesn't go away. They're just transferred to strong hands at a discount. So this is how typically things work. The odds are this probably won't be a contagion, but again, I'm not a forecaster. I don't know enough about it, but uh, I would suspect that they'll get this under control over the weekend and make an announcement. But that doesn't preclude the fact that the conditions that uh, set this off are still in place. So you can expect more landmines to go off in, in, the, in the relatively near future. So I talked about this many times in the past, and I was, I'm talking about this and thinking about this more and more. This is a chart from Horizon or a table from Horizon Kinetics. I've been looking for something like this. Somebody do this work, and this is a pretty good uh, table that they presented. What is this? This is the maturity structure of U.S. Treasury securities, right? Uh, so basically, um, what I wanted to point out was, is like trying to understand the volume of treasury debt and when it's going to mature. And uh, what you can see is like in the next year, 30% of all outstanding treasury debt needs to be rolled. And so this is the point I was making. So if the debt is like 30 trillion and you have to roll 30% of it, so close to 10 trillion needs to be rolled over the next year, do you think interest rates are going to stay at <laughs> Do you think we're closer to the beginning or the end of the interest rates raising cycle by the Fed? I mean, you can start playing with the math. If you go out three years to January 26, half the debt needs to be rolled. So 15 trillion needs to be rolled in the next three years. Do you think it's going to be you know rolled at higher rates or lower rates? Currently, the average interest rate on the $31 trillion of debt is approximately 2.4%, if Horizon's uh, information is correct. You're substantially above that now. And the problem here is, is that the Treasury Department um, kind of didn't take advantage of the period of low interest rates. You know, I mean, you had countries like Austria and uh, Argentina even, a basket case like Argentina that issued 100-year bonds when rates were at, you know, 5,000-year lows. And yet the United States structured their treasury security maturity where half the debt matures in the next three years. 
not prudent. Now, you know, I'm not saying that the, the bond market could have absorbed, you know, trillions of dollars of 100-year debt, but you certainly could have sold 10 and 30-year and securities. Why they didn't do that, I don't know. I'm not at the treasury. I have no, I have no idea. It seems dumb to me, but uh, I don't know. Maybe the market couldn't absorb that. Difficult to say. So, um, yeah, this is a problem. This is something that Luke Groman talks about a lot, you know, that this is going to be a catalyst for the next turn because, you know, you saw what happened with UK gilts earlier this year, right? And something similar could happen here. Or do we have assurances they're going to be able to roll all this debt? And you're telling me they're just going to keep rates higher for longer? I don't think so. And this is one of the things why, in my view. And, and, and don't, don't forget with the debt at 31 trillion, you still have built-in deficits. Okay. You have built-in deficits going for to the second coming of a trillion dollars a year. And now that's supposed to be in one of the best economies ever, if you listen to the politicians in Washington. What happens during a recession, which we're heading for? You know, what happens is tax receipts go down. And automatic spending goes up, you know, for unemployment insurance, food stamp, all these relief things. So your 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 spending goes up during a recession and your tax revenue goes down, thereby creating higher deficits. And so you have to fund those with additional treasury um, issuance. You're going to do that at 5%, 4.5%? Certainly not going to do it at 2.4% unless the Fed you know, cuts rates. And who's going to be buying all that additional treasury debt? We know foreigners aren't, aren't, aren't stepping up to the plate. So, yeah, um, this is another problem. This is where I thought, you know, my view was that the things that were going to break and possibly be the catalyst for the crisis for this cycle was going to be corporate high-yield debt probably around commercial uh, specific to commercial real estate and sovereign bond debt. We have so much debt now among sovereigns, especially in the OECD countries, you can't afford to have rates this high and have these levels of debt. It simply is not sustainable. And so it's something to think about. Uh, I'm not making a prediction. I don't know what will happen, but, uh, you know, if you're not familiar with Luke Groman, you should probably look up some of his interviews. You might have to listen to the interviews a couple times because he talks fast and um, he talks about things that a lot of people don't know about. So again, how is this actionable? Well, we know what's going to happen eventually. Inevitably, the Fed's going to step in and have to buy. They're going to expand their balance sheet. Uh, this is why we're fundamentally bullish longer term on real assets because we think that inflation will be higher for longer. That's the thing that's going to be higher for longer is inflation, because this is the way that you deal with high debt levels. You inflate it away. Um, and so we'll see what happens. But uh, the race is on for Mr. Powell to see if he can get inflation down and get the economy uh, uh, to a point where uh, inflation decreases. I don't think they get down to 2%, but get it down to a place where he can sell it that they've accomplished what they need to accomplish before the whole financial world implodes. So I don't know, you know, think of it like slot car racing. I don't know which one of those is ahead right now, 
if the financial market's imploding faster than he can get inflation down to some rate that he can sell to everybody as being mission accomplished, I don't know. Those are your two tracks, and uh, and I think that's what's battling. But you, again, now we're starting to see the landmines go off with this bank, for example. So this is something, that, this is, uh, I'm glad I found this chart. And like I said, props to Horizon Connect. You should uh, read their letters, market letters they put out. They're pretty uh, pretty good. They, they have a lot of focus on uh, natural resources also. So something to think about. Uh, one thing I did want to add, uh, interest expense on the debt right now, you can look that up on the St. Louis Fed website. They have a St. Louis Fed, just put St. Louis Fed, Fred, it's called Fred, um, St. Louis Fed, then put Fred and then put U.S. Treasury uh, or put uh, U.S. Treasury debt interest or something like this. And they have a searchable website with all of this economic data. And if you look at the, I should have put the chart up, but I forgot, the interest that we're paying on the debt has exploded higher. Um, a year ago, it was around six on a rolling one year average it was around $600 billion. Now it's like 800 billion. So in a year, you're up 200 billion in interest. It's going like a moonshot straight up. If you look at the chart, it'll shock you. And uh, with rates where they are now, you are easily going to be over a trillion dollars, $1.2 trillion just in interest on the debt possibly over the next year. Think about that. You have revenues coming in, I think, uh, forecasted like 4.5 trillion. And so a quarter of it's being observed. Uh, is being absorbed by just just uh, interest on the debt, two point two trillion, something like that, in entitlement, Social Security and Medicare, eight hundred billion in defense. Now, how do you fund the rest of the government? Because you just ate up all of your revenue. And again, remember, in a recession, revenue goes down. So it's something to think about. I think that that's another reason why I think that sometimes decade gold is probably going to go to $10,000 an ounce, but uh, who knows? So more anecdotal evidence, evidence that people have their heads in the sand. Um, this is the heavy duty, heavy truck index. Um, this comes from sediment trader, get this off Twitter. You can see uh, as the truck index goes down, you see, you know, what happened during these financial crises. Uh, you kind of see the spike that we had uh, kind of coincide with that M2. You see how that works? If you put, if you grease the wheels, grease the gears, um, you get more um, activity. And now that we're shrinking, this is getting ready to go negative. Uh, what do you think the last time this went negative? Again, we work in probabilities here, not predict the future, not rely on one indicator. Uh, but we have so many, there's so many people that are just you know, talking about this soft landing. You're not going to have a soft landing, folks. It's not going to happen. Okay, especially with the amount of liquidity that's been pulled out of the market and where rates are. Things are going to start deteriorating here rapidly. Uh, and you're going to see, you know, I don't, I've said before, by base case, the S&P could probably drop to 3,000. Probably is going to end up going lower to compensate for the over- valuation that we had, right? Returning to the mean is one thing, but going below the mean, why couldn't it go to 2,200 or 2,500? That's just the general stock market. Do you think that uh, junior mining is going to do well in that environment? I don't think so, but you're going to have tremendous bargains because coming out of this, when they when they start pouring gas on the fire to reliquify, you're going to get, you know, 
and risk assets are going to run like a scalded cat. So this is from Jesse Felder, good follow. I like following him and sign up for his, uh, you should sign up for his uh, email distributions. He puts out a thing every week, good tweets on there and his articles are pretty good. Um, Kathy Woods, ARK Investment Management has earned more than $300 million in fees on its flagship exchange traded fund since the inception nine years ago while wiping out $10 billion of investors' cash in the same period. Right, you know, Kathy Wood, the ARC thing. This happens during every bubble. This happened in the tech bubble in the late 90s and early aughts. This happened during the GFC and housing. And you always get this. Everything that goes straight up like this always comes, you retrace it all. And all along here, when people point out that you're in a bubble, that it's bubblicious, that it's not different this time, the whole way up, people will argue, you know, this is when Kathy Woods was giving interviews and saying Tesla was going to go to $5,000 a share stupid crap like that okay and there's still tech bros out there young guys that don't have experience well it'll come back no it won't sorry you'll be in your 40s before it comes back this is how it works go back and look at all the tech winners from the last financial crisis the tech bubble okay if look at the earnings of cisco microsoft they were going up over time but their stock prices didn't do anything for over almost a decade or more because the shares got too far ahead of the business prospects of the company. And that's what happens here. And in this case, she's buying crap that, again, you know, people were buying back then and justifying it. Why they don't have earnings? You know, the Federal Reserve's policies of zero interest rates in this environment enabled this nonsense, enabled these companies that shouldn't even have existed. You're going to see so many companies disappear. Okay, over the next year or so that you didn't think we're going to, they're just not going to be viable. All these meal delivery companies, Uber, none of these companies make any money. Okay, and they can't just issue debt anymore because there's not going to be any appetite for the debt. As sediment just gets blown out, liquidity gets blown out. People are going to be like, no way, I'm just going to put my money in T-bills and take my 5% and be happy. It's not going to be return on capital, it's going to be return of capital. So we still, I still am bullish on oil long term. I don't know what will happen in the medium term. Like I said, we have so many things going on. The China reopening, I don't know if that's going to be sustainable, how long the growth will last, if it will just be a sugar high. You know, I just got done reading a uh, things that are going on in India. So there's so many plates in the air with energy. I think we're in an energy crisis. But again, in the short term, if we have a economic dislocation in the United States, sufficient size uh it'll probably put downward pressure on oil prices that's what's happening okay but over the next 10 years again you're going to see record oil prices in the next couple few years just because of what we've talked about in the past and so here's an article from uh i think it was cnbc i'll put links to these articles uh so you can go read them yourself this is um the CEO of Pioneer Natural Resources, uh, Scott Sheffield's comments says that while oil production in the U.S. will continue its return towards pre-COVID levels, limits on refining capacity and inventory mean it will not grow as much as some hope, according to Pioneer Natural Resources CEO, Scott Sheffield. Quote, we just don't have the potential to grow U.S. production ever again, unquote. Now, this is a guy that's in the Permian. This is, this is not like some junior wildcare. This is like one of the major companies. 
And it's not just because of refining capacity and inventory. It's because you're running out of good locations. All of the good locations have been drilled, the tier one or most of them. Goes on to say, we may get back to 13 million barrels a day, he said, which would match the record high average recorded in November 2019. But he added it will be at a, quote, very slow pace, taking two and a half to three years to match that previous record level. Well, we'll see. And the world needs U.S. oil because um, the prospects of increasing oil production in other places in the world are not, <laughs> not very good right now also because of the fact that um, the lack of investment. And, you know, now what you're having to do is a lot of frontier level exploration. You see like what's happening in Guyana offshore. That's tremendous. It's been tremendous for Exxon and Hess as it's basically went from zero to probably in the near future, probably within 18 months to a million barrels a day. But that's in the context of a hundred million barrel a day world market. And so that's not going to save the world. You have some success. You saw the Venus well offshore Africa, West Africa, which I think is going to be probably the next Guiana, hopefully. There's some other activity happening there. But, uh, you know, these are very capital intensive long-term projects. It's the easy stuff of just going and drilling gushers in the Permian or Eagle Ford or Bakken are over. And so Gorin and Rosenzweig came out with their Q4 um, market review, if you will, or commentary. You should go to their website and sign up. You can get it. It's free. It's about 40 pages. I would read it if I were you. Uh, it's one of the best, well-written, thought-out uh, quarterly papers, reviews on what's happening in the natural resource uh, sector. And here's their uh, comments on oil supply, a couple snippets from the recent commentary. Crude oil fundamentals are very tight and risk getting considerably tighter. Investors continue to starve energy companies of much needed capital, the lifeblood of a solid supply base. Although the trend of lower spending has been in place for several years, our models tell us we are nearing a critical inflection point. The growth in shale production, the only source of non-OPEC plus production growth over the last two decades, may be coming to an end. This is kind of dovetailing with what the previous guy, CEO of Pioneer, is saying. Few of us properly appreciate the importance of the shales. Not only were they the only source of incremental growth over the past decade. Think about that. They, the shales basically saved us from basically you know, $200 oil going on with the commentary, but they were also tremendous in absolute terms. Between 2010 and 2020, U.S. shale oil production grew by 7.6 million barrels per day, while natural gas liquids, nearly all from shale, increased by 4 million barrels a day. Total liquid production from the U.S. shales grew by 11.6 million barrels per day, more than Saudi Arabia's production, 10.5 million barrels per day. So basically, in a span of 10 years, you added a new Saudi Arabia. Basically, U.S. shale basically saved the world from having imploding and having an oil crisis. You know, I, in the mid-2000s, I before the shale revolution, I read a book by Matt Simmons called Twilight in the Desert, and he was talking about uh, oil oil depletion in Saudi Arabia, and we were going to have a crisis. Now, nobody was able to anticipate the shale oil revolution, okay? And you see what had happened. 
Now, notwithstanding the fact that they burned up a lot of capital, I'm not going to get into that, but this basically saved the world. This growth, uh, you didn't have growth anywhere else in the world for all practical purposes. And so now if we're winding that down, if we've exploited all of the easy stuff and we're not putting enough capital back in, what do you think is going to happen? You know, I remember during the peak of the shale oil boom, you know, when you get the maximum positive sentiment and everybody was drill, baby, drill, and you have you would see articles where people were saying that the U.S. was going to be oil independent, which it's not, by the way, it has a chance of being energy independent, but this is a long story. But it's not going, it still imports oil because you have crude grades matter, right? And the crude that we get out of a lot of these shales we can't refine in many of our refineries. So we export that crude and import the crude that we can. Uh, net, net though, we were looking pretty good. But you had, you know, nutty articles, which this is when I started becoming suspicious again, where people were saying, oh yeah, we're going to grow shale. It's a 50 year runway and, you know, all of our problems are solved. We're going to take production of 20 or 25 million barrels a day. We're the new Saudi Arabia, yada, yada, yada. And you see that didn't, that didn't work out. And it's not happening. What happened was great. What happened was a big benefit to places like, I know so many guys that basically set themselves up uh, for their future, just working in the oil field, making so much money. But, you know, it's totally different now. You, when I remember driving through the Eagle Ford small towns, in heading up towards San Antonio, I mean, they were just building all these hotels and all this stuff. It was, you know, these roads couldn't handle it. You have these two lane roads going through these small towns are packed with trucks and vehicles. And it's not like that anymore. There's still activity, but it's not like it used to be. And so um, this is the trend. This is the most important thing in the world economy for the next decade is oil supply. Now, again, People will say, well, the, why is the oil price going down? Because like I said before, you've had this oversupply from Russia. You've had other things happening. You know, supply and demand are finely tuned. Bound. Either either side of oversupply or undersupply can have tremendous moves in the short term in the oil price. But fundamentally, fundamentally, the thing that kept us in check vis-a-vis -vis oil prices is now dissipating. And so unless you find a new supply of oil supply growth, then you're going to have a problem. You're going to have uh, an oil supply problem in the next couple few years. Now you may get a respite because demand is going to get, you know, could get whacked because if we enter in, you know, say we get into a really, really deep recession in the US, that's going to whack oil demand. Let's just be frank. Okay. And oil prices will come down, but that, that, that just pushes the problem out because the spending will contract even more. Remember, during COVID, when the whole world was locked down, oil, oil demand only decreased from 100 million barrels a day to like 82 was the lowest, I believe. That's only an 18% decrease when you lock the entire world down. People don't understand how inculcated oil is into every single facet of our life. So continuing with the commentary from Goring and Rosenzweig, Few people have acknowledged shale's importance to global oil and natural gas markets. History books discussing Saudi Arabia in the middle of the last century devote most of their attention to oil industry developments. 
In just 10 years, oil companies brought online the equivalent of two Saudi Arabias in the same country, talking about the U.S. An incredible achievement, and yet today, the shales are primarily mentioned in the context of EMP company value destruction and climate degradation. Surging shale production also allowed many investors and analysts to forget about the energy challenges society had faced in the years past. For example, in the early 2000s, investors were fixated on an running out of oil. I just talked about that. And I think that's going to resurface here, that discussion in the next year or so. That's going to get resurrected. Uh, here's another article. This is from... Uh, I don't know exactly which, oh, it's from the Wall Street Journal. They had a tremendous article. I'll put a link to it. Pretty good. Uh, basically, my headline here is different from theirs, but basically, has the U.S. reached peak oil production, peak shale oil production? The boom in production that over the last decade made the U.S. the world's largest producer is waning, suggesting the era of shale growth is nearing its peak. Yes, yes, that's happening. We know that. Most people are not paying attention. Frackers are hitting fewer big gushers in the Permian Basin, America's busiest oil patch. The latest sign they have drained their catalog of good wells. Shale Company's biggest and best wells are producing less oil. So you, now you have a comment from the CEO of ConocoPhillips, quote, the world is going back to a world we had in the 70s and the 80s. Okay. He warned that OPEC would soon supply more of the world's oil. And I have an interesting development that most people aren't paying attention to that happened last week that, uh, you know, as if you look at that from a geopolitical context, which I like talking about and people ignore, okay, because they maybe it's above their head or they're not interested, but do you really want more control of the oil supply going to OPEC? When OPEC now, uh, two of the major um, adversaries, Saudi Arabia and Iran, just had a detente negotiated by China, where they're now going to put aside a lot of their differences and reestablish diplomatic ties by opening their embassies back up. You know, this is this whole multipolar world we've been talking about, folks. This is why the United States is in a panic running around the world trying to overthrow all these countries and maintain its hegemon because they are going to be, excuse my language, asked out over the next decade. The hegemon is collapsing. And so instead of working our own deals, instead of looking for win-win situations, we're running around the world threatening to overthrow countries that don't do our bidding. You see there's a color revolution happening in the Republic of Georgia now, okay, for example, instigated by the United States. And so what do you think now that Iran and Saudi Arabia, who have been bitter enemies, are now, and it's things being brokered by China, okay, so that's a feather in China's cap to establish itself as, you know, a world leader, if you will. I'm not saying that they're going to be, that everything's put aside between these two, but this is another development. Here we go. Iran and Saudi agree to restore relations. Iran and Saudi Arabia have agreed to reestablish di diplomatic relations and reopen their embassies within two months, according to Iranian and Saudi state media. Quote, after implementing the decision, the foreign ministers of both nations will meet to prepare for an exchange of ambassadors, unquote. And this was, again, negotiated by China. And China said that China will continue to play a constructive role in handling hotspot issues and demonstrate responsibility as a major nation. You see what's happening? The multipolar world continues. And what's the U.S. doing? 
No, we want to send more weapons to Ukraine. Okay. <laughs> you know, if I was the Saudi government, if I was the Saudi intelligence agency, I would be looking for rooting out the coming attempted overthrow of the Saudi government by the United States. They can't have this. And what is Israel doing now? You know, Israel was trying to reach a detente with its Arab neighbors in Saudi Arabia. And now you have, you know, Israel and Iran are major enemies. And now again, you know, this is what the CEO of ConocoPhillips was talking about. Where do you think, <laughs> where do you think over time, if China is now negotiating settlements between adversaries in the major oil producing area of the world, what do you think that that leads to? I mean, let it play out. This is where you got to do your second and third level thinking. Where do you think that oil is going to end up eventually? What currency is it going to be traded in? What does BRICS membership look like for both these countries? How does that affect positively or negatively the United States or Western Europe? You see how this is working? You see what's really going on? Now, we don't know exactly what will happen. And this is just one small thing. You know, they this could, you know, just be a nothing burger or it could be heading down a path that's not, you know, going to be positive for, you know, the hegemon, let's put it that way. So they had the big uh, Sierra Energy Week here in Houston last week. So there were some comments from Bloomberg I wanted just to go over. Um, I thought were interesting. Uh, here's a comment by the CEO of Shell. He says, quote, the fundamentals show a tight market. He's talking about the oil market. So it's more likely to be on the higher side than the lower side, talking about oil prices. Then you have uh, Chevron CEO. The world's pretty tight right now. As we get into the second half of this year, the risks to the upside begin to accumulate. Um, then there's some more comments that were in the article from Bloomberg or the email I got. I get these emails from the Bloomberg energy thing. So demand given added impetus by the reopening of China's economy will keep building to record levels as supply is constrained by OPEC plus policy, lackluster shale growth, and historically low investment. This is why we're invested in offshore oil services, which I think are going to probably be one of the best returning industries over the next couple of few years uh, and have the potential to make you very wealthy. Again, caveating this, putting the asterisk there, look in the footnotes, we could have a cyclical downturn uh, in the interim. And then, like I said, two, three, four years out, uh, once they reliquify everything, uh, oil prices explode. You know, I actually think interest rates aren't really going to be the determining factor. I've said this before. I think it's, you know, oil prices, energy prices are going to be the determining factor for economic growth. Um, I'm sympathetic to an argument that Eric Townsend at um, Macro Voice has made that assuming that the economy, the economies of the world, because they are so dependent on oil, uh, that the ability of the world to produce sufficient oil will retard or hold back economic growth. That even if you try to return to economic growth, you'll have insufficient energy inputs to do that, uh, pointing specifically to oil. But we will see. Again, I think that we're going to see record oil prices at some point in the future. This is why, you know, uh, with this chronic underinvestment and some of the other things we continue to point out here, uh, I mean, you can see it coming. That doesn't, like I said, doesn't mean you don't have a dip in the in the short term. 
Uh, goes on here, another note, oil market fundamentals look pretty solid, but prices face headwinds. Supply from Russia has remained stronger than many expected. Barrels shunned by Europe are finding their way to markets in Asia. This is why if you go and look at, uh, you know, a lot of the tanker, um, both crude tanker companies and clean product tanker companies uh, have been having blowout earnings and the outlooks are tremendous. Why? Because as oil demand growth now is going up to 101, 102, 103 million barrels a day, you're not adding tankers, okay? Not only that, you've discombobulated the efficiency of the tanker market, transportation markets, by uh, putting all these sanctions on Russia. So uh, the same amount of tankers have to travel more, more miles to deliver more crude. And the ability to increase the tanker fleet is, again, uh, constrained by the ability of yards in Asia to build these, which are already booked up with container ships from the container ship uh, boom that we had during uh, the pandemic. So uh, understanding different industries and knock-on effects of different policies uh, is what we try to focus on here at Actionable Intelligence. So I found this interesting. Next era, uh, very large uh, electric utility, renewable company, one of the largest re um, renewable companies in the U.S. Uh, they say that offshore wind is a bad investment. So this was uh, comments made at the Zero Week. American renewable energy firm, Next Era, one of the largest renewable energy companies in the world, told Zero Week Energy Conference in Houston that offshore wind is a bad investment. CEO John Ketchum said that NextEra already finds it difficult to maintain onshore wind fleets, hmm. which are less complicated and less capital intensive than offshore. Costs associated with offshore wind projects continue to rise, particularly due to complicated subsea cable installation, supply chain issues, and the constant threat of extreme weather and saltwater corrosion. Yes, it's not... Um, you know, if you were in the naval service or if you've been around maritime at all, you understand that you have guys on the ship. The whole deck department is basically with with when they're not, you know, you're not tying up or getting underway and handling lines. Uh, most of the rest of their day is corrosion prevention. They're constantly chipping the deck. They're constantly grinding paint down. They're constantly taking care of rust spots. Okay, because the corrosion uh, battle with corrosion never ends being in that environment. And so I can tell you of a wind farm I know that's on the Gulf Coast of Texas on one of the big ranches uh, that a company I worked for before was thinking about buying. And we did the, you know, I encouraged them to do because I know the uh, people there and the operating history of the plant. It's horrible. And you have a predominantly southeast uh, wind coming from the southeast, which is off the ocean, okay, which is steady, good wind. But the problem is it's coming off the ocean, so it's carrying, you know, more moisture and salt, you know, in, in it. And when you go and look at the equipment, it's ate up. The foundation bolts were ate up, uh, where some of them didn't even have threads on anymore. The substation apparatus for breakers, uh, you know, were ate up. Now you can counteract these things by, you know, buying stainless steel, but that's more expensive, right? And you have to remember, you can, you can, like I said, 
I've told people before when I get in arguments with them, I can you know be out in the middle of this field and launch a rocket, a manned rocket, and recover him to this field. But why would we do that? How much would it cost? It doesn't make any sense to do it like that. That's why you launch people from Baikonur or from you know Cape Canaveral. You don't just you know do this out here. And so things cost money, and if things you can't recoup your investment, then it makes no sense to build the thing. And that's what we're finding out. And people say, well, we just put them offshore. You can put bigger machines and, you know, all this resource can power, you know, all of Denmark or the UK. Yeah. And it gets ate up. You know, the, the, the blades on wind turbines, uh, a big company, I believe it was Orsted had a big problem with this, like a thousand machines or something. They had to go back and do a lot of work on what the blades on a wind turbine are airfoils like a wing. Okay. That's how they operate. And when you have, <laughs> This moisture and the salt, it basically just eats up the leading edge of the of the blade because the blade's made out of fiberglass or composites, okay? And so you have to do additional blade works. I mean, it can be fixed. The guys go out there, climb out there. They grind it down, re-fiberglass. This is expensive. It's lost production. It's dangerous. It costs a lot of money to maintain. And that's what we saw at this plant on the Gulf Coast. And after, you know, you'd open up a panel inside, electrical panel inside the nacelle and terminal blocks were just corroded and fall. you put a screwdriver on a terminal block and it would just fall apart. This was after maybe eight years of operation. These things are supposed to last 25 years. They just get ate up. And so this is what he's talking about. And so when you incorporate the construction costs, because you have to use better materials to withstand that, then the maintenance costs, you can't make money. So there goes your energy revolution, right? There goes your clean revolution, energy transition. This is not me saying that. This is the one of the largest renewable energy companies in the world saying he's having a difficult time to maintain onshore wind fleets. Forget about offshore. So what's that do for fossil fuel demand? Again, what's it do for nuclear long-term? That's where we're heading. Inevitably, everybody's going to end up there at nuclear, whether they like it or not. So here's Germany. The genius is there. You know, uh, evidently they're going to build 25,000 megawatts or 25 gigawatts of new gas-powered plants. So natural gas turbines, I guess, combined cycle. I don't know exactly the composition, but this is the genius's the genius of Robert Abick, you know, economy minister. Uh, we will shut down our nuclear power plants, which are perfectly good, have a safe operating record because we have to, because we're Green Party members and our theology of our religion is anti-nuclear. That's our whole, uh, one of our main sacraments of the Green Party is, you know, uh, Atomkraft 9 Danke, nuclear power, no thank you. That's for 25, 30, 40 years. That's what, so they can't turn, they can't go there. Okay. It's like telling a Catholic to convert to a Baptist. It's not going to happen or vice versa. And so the energy vende doesn't work. Can't run the modern industrial German economy on intermittent power. Solar panels on the Baltic coast don't work. Uh, to supply the necessary energy. And so they're burning all this coal now. And so the answer is to build gas plants 
And where do you get the gas? From the uh, LNG market, which is expensive because you've destroyed your relationship with the with Russia, where you were getting cheap gas, all you wanted for relative pr good prices, because the United States blew up your gas pipeline. <laughs> you can't make it up, folks. I don't write this stuff. It writes itself. Germany will use auctions to ensure new gas power plants are built, which the government sees as necessary to secure supply at times when renewable energy does not deliver enough electricity. But we were told by these people that the energy vende was going to work, that it was going to deliver. And that battery storage, yada, yada, yada. Now we're going to build 25,000 megawatts. When all you got to do is turn the reactors back on. Here's what the genius Robert Abick said. Quote, we will build the power plants we need for the times when wind and sun do not provide enough electricity out to tender, unquote. So he's admitting that there are times when there's not enough wind and sun to provide enough electricity. We'll just turn the nukes back on. I told you why they can't. That's why people in Germany, if you want to be competitive in the world, you're going to have to turn your nukes back on. You're going to have to replace these uh, people that are not these little children that you've allowed to get their hands on the on the uh, levers of power, you're going to have to throw them out and get rational people in there with a well-thought-out uh, energy plan. But, you know, if you're going to allow the United States to blow up your and destroy your relationships, economic relationships, and not say anything, well, I don't, I don't have a lot of hope. Now, I have got a lot of emails from people in Germany that do not share that, but they have told me that they are in the distinct minority, that they... The people, most of the people in Germany have bought into this hook, line, and sinker. So you get what you want. You get what you deserve in life. Going on uh, from the genius Habeck, there are already instruments that we can use, and we will create more so that by 2030, we will have created about 25 gigawatts of additional alternative capacity to coal-fired power plants. These would be powered by natural gas <laughs> and later hydrogen. <laughs> Again, folks, it writes itself. As soon as possible, he said, his government would present a power plant strategy by the summer. The strategy is turn the reactors back on. That would solve a lot of the problems right there, but they were, they were refusing to do it. They will eventually because the gas is not going to be available at the prices. This is the problem that Japan ran into. This is why they're reactivating all their reactors. You see, there's these different labs around the world. You can look at them and see people that get get the situation they're in, like, like uh, Japan, which has to import basically all of its resources, it can't run on LNG. It doesn't want to use coal, so it's reactivating, has a plan to reactivate all of its shuttered plants and build more nuclear plants, I'm saying. Germany is now, because the United States blew up its uh, main source of cheap natural gas, is kind of going to be like, um, and they don't want to use coal, and so they're going to be in a situation, they're going to build all this sunk capital into natural gas fired plants and won't be able to get the gas price. The gas prices uh, are going to be off the hook. And so they're going to end up like Japan. So I think eventually Germany ends up at nuclear. Probably, it'll probably take them 10 years, but that's probably where they'll end up. Again, here's something on the wind turbine. Wind turbine failure rates increasing. Unexpected and increasing wind turbine failure rates, largely in newer and bigger models, because they keep just building these things larger and larger and they can't withstand the forces, are savaging the profits of some of the world's biggest manufacturers. As Siemens Gamesa, 
GE Investus report heavy repair and maintenance losses. That's right, because when they first build the darn thing, it's under warranty. Usually what a lot of companies will do will sign a contract with like Siemens or Vestas to run the plant for them um, for the first two or three years. Okay. And then you're there on the hook for all the maintenance and all the problems. And believe me, there's tons of problems. When I was in this wind business, you wouldn't believe all the warranty war. It's just a mess. And now that they've made the machines larger with larger stresses, the materials can't take it. They're finding out and they got all these problems and somebody has to pay. Faulty components created a 472 million euro hole in Siemens Gamesa's December quarterly result, making up more than half of the nearly billion euro loss for the period. Of that total, 187 million euros was due to a reduction in revenue with the remainder due to warranty provisioning. Oof. The wind turbine maker said, quote, a negative trend, unquote, of failure rates from turbines are causing higher than expected maintenance costs and warranty callouts. It did not specify which components are affected. Well, I, I've not been involved in wind for a couple few years. I'm dealing with solar now, which is another uh, <laughs> deal. But uh, yeah, this is what I was seeing this when I was in wind. So it is what it is. Uh, again, all roads lead to nuclear power. Okay, guys, that's it for this week. A lot, uh, we went over a lot of stuff again. Um, if you want to know what I'm doing, if you want to understand how we take the ideas that we talk about in these videos and transfer them to actionable uh, investment uh, opportunities, which there are around the world, there's always an opportunity, there's always a bull market somewhere, then I would really uh, encourage you to take a subscription to the Actionable Intelligence Alert newsletter. It's $150 a year. You get 12 monthly issues. We have a model portfolio in there, kind of companies that you know i have i'm i've bought my own portfolio i talk about them i update them uh but again uh if you just want to get my free advice right now which you, you know i'm just a guy on the internet i wouldn't be buying i wouldn't be adding new money to any positions right now yes i have some positions on that i you know because you don't know the future 100 you got to be somewhat in the market but you know would i be you know adding new positions to junior uranium stocks that have no sales and earnings no i mean if we get a market dislocation in the general stock market all these stocks are going to go down and you're going to have a better buying opportunity probably later on this year so again there's nothing wrong with just sitting in cash it's boring it's not fun it's not exciting you don't get dopamine rushes uh and all this stuff by checking your stocks every other day and they're going up but the, the goal here is to preserve capital and put capital to work when the probabilities are in our favor. And right now, uh, the probabilities aren't necessarily in your favor. So we track that. If you want to, uh, you also have access to our Discord. Uh, we have a lot of smart people on there. We interact. Uh, we talk about a lot of issues, a lot of different companies. People bring ideas. That's very valuable too, in my view. Other people may disagree, uh, but uh, that that's available if you're interested. Okay, guys, that's it for this week. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you.